Good evening once again, and I welcome us to our Bible study. Good evening to those who are also joining us online. So, over the past few months, we have met, or we have considered, we have studied the confession at least 44 different times. There's a lot of noise up and down. So we've considered or studied the confession at least 44 different times. And tonight will be the 45th time uh, that we will gather like this to study the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And tonight we find ourselves in chapter 9. We began last week, Tuesday, by considering the first paragraph of chapter 9. Uh, Pastor Butu was was teaching, and um, he took us through the foundation, the foundation on which the remaining paragraphs are built upon in this chapter. And tonight we'll move far, but we'll not move very far. So we're just going to take a step forward, but a very large step forward. If you're on the group chat, or I think uh, if you're online, it can be shared as well. I sent a, a document, a PDF document, um, with the content of chapter nine. This, this document I sent is different from the one that was shared last week. What is the difference? The one that was shared last week, which I also re referenced when I sent it, is the original wording. While the one I sent today is the modernized wording done by our brothers and friends at Founders Ministries. So Founders Ministries, Tom Askell, and the team there. So this is the modernized version. And I'm going to take us through the five paragraphs in this version, this modern version that I sent. Now, you don't have to, you don't need to have it to follow. If you listen, it's modernized, it's easy to follow. So let's read together. Paragraph one. God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. Paragraph two. Humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet, this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. Paragraph three. Humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and are dead in sin so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. Paragraph 4. When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also what is evil. Mm. Paragraph 5, which is my favorite paragraph anyways. Only in the state of glory is the will made perfectly and unchangeably free toward good alone. Amen. So let's run over what we considered last week in paragraph 1. And then we get into today's gist. So in paragraph one, a number of things easily stand out. So I'm going to build upon what Pastor Butu, the foundation that he laid for us last week Tuesday. In paragraph one, we see how special man is. Um, you see, when the writers of the confession began to write about free will, at the back of their minds, or in the front of their, whatever is in front of them, is the truth that man is an image bearer. So this doctrine we are considering is unique to man over and above all other things or creatures that God made. 
So you can't say that the birds have the same thing we are talking about. You can't say that the trees have the same thing that we are talking about. Whatever we are talking about is unique to man. God gives man something which he doesn't give the other creatures, which are really the lesser creatures. What does God give man? He gives man freedom. Man is free. And in paragraph one, we see that God endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. It seems like a lot of English, but it's really just something simple. What has God endowed man with? Natural liberty and power to make choices. And there are two key things I think are clear from the paragraph. Number one is that man is not forced. There is no type of forcing when it comes to the will of man. You see, liberty is the opposite of forced. Every man or woman is totally responsible for what they do. Even when, you know, sometimes children say, my father forced me to do something. Really? If you did not want to do it, you would not do it. You chose to do it. There is no force. If you don't do it, you collect the beating now. But you chose, to do, you chose to obey, or you chose to disobey. Everybody is free. Everybody is, nobody is forced. So God does not come and force people. And I think this was one of the issues we had last week when someone was talking about impeding of the will. God doesn't impede. It's not to say God is free to impede. Biblically speaking, God does not impede. It's not as if man wants to do something and God forces man to do... You know what force is? Force is not reasoning. You may want to do A and I reason with you and you do B. At the end of the day, it's you that chooses to do B. But that man wants to do A and God forces him, takes away his will and forces him to do B. That's not, that's not true. It's not biblical. Secondly, man's freedom is not determined by nature. Look at, that, look at that paragraph again. It says, man is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. Now, nature here could really refer to the laws of nature. Um, it could even go as far as saying it refers to the environment. That there are certain things in the environment that makes me behave a certain way, either to be a good person or to be a bad person. Hmm. That's not true. And it's certainly not biblical. It is almost similar to this thing we used to say when Nigerians, I mean, we are Nigerians here, that Yoruba people are this, Hausa people are this, um, Igbo people are this. It is not true that people, because of certain environmental conditions or certain geographical conditions, are predisposed to good or predisposed to evil. The fact that there are outliers in every of those categorizations proves that people are not the product of their environment. Even in a very bad place, you see people who choose to do what every other person does not do. How? Well, because man has choice. Even in a place where people steal, you see people who still choose not to steal. And even in a place where people don't steal, you see people who choose to steal. So it is not determined by nature, by the environment, or by things around, there is nothing that impedes this freedom. There is nothing that impedes man's freedom. So what, what we learned last week is that whatever choice a person makes is an expression of their own desires. And we looked at James 1, if you'd be willing to turn there, James 1, verse 14. And James said, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it is inside. Whatever we do outward flows from what we want to do from the inside of us. So man is, man is truly free. So some of the things we wanted to preempt last week was if... Man is free, how can God be sovereign? We'll come to that later. 
But this is talking about man's freedom. The same issue we have. Whenever we're talking about God's sovereignty, we want to talk about man's freedom. Whenever we talk about man's freedom, we want to talk about God's freedom. It's good to deal with issues first before we start thinking of how they link together because the Bible definitely teaches uh, the truths we are considering. So, in, in chapter 9, we have five paragraphs. The first paragraph is introduction, which we considered last week. Paragraph 2, 3, 4, 5 introduces us to what we call the four states of man's will. But before we get there, um, some of us last week had issues with man is totally free. How can man be totally free? I mean, if man is a sin, how can man be totally free? What can man choose and all that? And it became clear to some of us already, while the lesson was going on last week, that we need to still qualify this thing we call free will. Because it's not enough to just say man is free. Of course, it's good to lay the foundation by saying man is free, but it's not enough. Now, I may, I may do a bit of philosophy. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of philosophy per se, but I think when it comes to the subject of freedom, a bit of philosophy will be helpful. A bit of philosophy will be helpful. Now, there's an old man called Augustine, Saint Augustine, if you like, uh, but if you, every other person that has died is a saint anyways, but Augustine, was a theologian and a philosopher who lived maybe the first 400 years of the church, I think. Uh, he lived the third, fourth century of the church. And he was the first person that really began to postulate certain things about the will of man or what we call human freedom. How free is man? And Augustine said, that when it comes to the will of man, there are only four possibilities. We've looked at this before, so I'll just brush through it, but, let, but this is where it really has its application. And the first possibility Augustine put is posse peccari. Posse peccari is Latin, but you don't need to write the Latin. Just put number one. The first possibility, it might be good if to, to write, perhaps, if, if that will help you, because there's a lot of not to, able to, not to. So the first thing Augustine said, the first possibility is able to sin. The first possibility when it comes to the will of man or the freedom of man is that man is able to sin. Did we get that? So what's the first possibility? Eh? Man is what? Able to sin. Second possibility, man is able to not sin. Or able to remain free from sin. So what's the second possibility? Man is able to not sin. What's the difference between able to sin and able to not sin? Can somebody help us? See, this thing we are saying, posse peccari, non posse peccari, non posse non peccari. If we don't understand what it means, it's rubbish. So what is the difference between able to sin and able to not sin? English class. Eh? This is we drank something before coming to church. Able to sin means I'm able to sin. Abi, ability. Able to not sin means I'm able to choose not to do something. Does that make sense? Are we together? Able to sin means I can sin. Able to not sin means I can choose not to sin. Is that clear? Is that clear? See, if we don't understand this, we may not understand any other thing we are going to do tonight. Like I said, writing it might be helpful. Number three, not able to sin. Number one, able to sin. Number two, able to not sin. Number three, not able to sin. What does that mean? So there's no ability to sin. Abi, it's just the way you can say it is not possible for a man to fly. Cool? Is not able to fly. Doesn't make sense. So that in this state, man is not able to. Sin is outside the realm of possibility. It cannot happen. Of course, there's no such thing as a probability of zero. But in this case, there's probability of zero. Sin cannot happen. Number three, not able to not sin. Sorry, number four, not able to not sin. What does that mean? So just that not able now 
English, just convert it to unable. Okay? Unable to not sin means what? Eh? You cannot choose to not sin. Do you understand? It is not possible to now choose to not sin. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Let's run over it again. Number one, able to sin. There's ability to sin. Number two, able to not sin. There's ability to say no to sin. Number three, not able to sin means you cannot even sin. There's nothing inside. Sin is an impossibility, right? Number four, not able to not sin means you cannot even choose to stop sinning. It is an inevitability. I take 30 seconds to digest this thing. For real, think about it. Because our understanding of the entire chapter, I won't say it is hinged to understand this thing that Augustine said, but what Augustine said would help us to better understand some of the scriptures is definitely biblical. He's not talking about this away from the Bible, but to help us to throw more light on this topic. At the root of Augustine's postulation is this. What is the extent or degree of change that has happened to the will of man? What is the extent or degree of change that has happened to the will of man? Some of us, we agree, which is where some of our questions were coming from last week. And, but the will of man in the Garden of Eden is certainly different from the will of man now. Abi, all of us would agree. But what is the extent? What does it look like? What does it look like? And when we come to paragraphs two to five, the writers of the confession, they've identified four states in which the will of man can exist. How many states? Four states in which the will of man can exist. What's the first state? The first state is the state of innocence, which is what paragraph two deals with. Paragraph two deals with what? The state of, we are not talking now. See, eh, there's no point in doing this thing if we don't understand. And we cannot understand if we are not actively thinking about it, processing it, and interacting. What's the first state? The state of innocence. The second state is the state of sin. The state of what? Which is what paragraph three deals with. Paragraph four deals with the state of glory. And paragraph five deals with, sorry, paragraph four deals with the state of grace. And paragraph five deals with the state of glory. So what are the four states? Innocence followed by, followed by, followed by, okay. So this evening, I mean, realistic, let's be real, we can only touch one. But I want to still throw some light on each of those states so that it will help us to understand what we are looking at today and even what we'll be looking at next week. Somebody might say that if the will of man exists in different states, then the will is not truly, is not truly, is not truly free will. Now, how can you say there's innocence, there's sin, there's grace, and then there's glory? It means that the will is not truly free will. Because something exists in states does not mean it is not truly that thing. And the classical example is water. Some of us did secondary school physics. What is the formula for water? H2O. But how many states can water, can H2O exist in? How many? What's the first state? No, let's start from, let's go. What is the first? Solid, which we we'll also call ice. What is the second state? Liquid, which we call water. Abby? What is the third state? Gas. So if you bring an ice cube now and put it in front of you, what is it? H2O. Abby? In that state, it is H2O. If you apply heat to it and put it in a bottle, is it still H2O? And then if you apply further heat and it becomes steam or vapor, is it still H2O? So, despite the fact that we see three different states, we are talking about 
the same thing. H2O has not changed. It has just changed the state dependent on temperature. So what determines the shape or form H2O takes is really temperature. At zero degrees Celsius, what you have is what? Huh? Ice. When you begin to bring it, raise the temperature, raise the temperature, it becomes what? When you begin to boil it, you are now above 100 degrees Celsius and it's going, it becomes what? That is similar to how the states of man's will is or are. These states are still free will or will. It's still the same thing. Just that based on certain circumstances, which we'll look at, it exists sometimes in innocence, or it once upon a time existed in innocence, in sin, in grace, and in glory. Are we together thus far? Are we together? Okay. So what characterizes these four states? Let's start with the first, the state of innocence. The key word in the state of innocence is initial instability. Okay? And let's go back to Augustine. What among those four possibilities can be obtainable in the state of innocence? There are two. In each of the states, you can find two of those possibilities present, which is why I said having a paper and a pen might help. So let's start with the first one, innocence. There are two possibilities here. The first possibility is able to sin, and the second possibility is not able to not sin. Are we together? <laughs> Are we together? Yes. That's why I, I did not choose to use posse, pecari, non, pesari, posse. That, that one looks like it's something somebody is speaking in a, a different tongue. So in the state of innocence, there are two possibilities present at the same time. In the state of innocence, man is able to sin and also able to not sin. In the state of sin, man is able to sin and unable to not sin. Take 10 seconds. Does it make sense? In the state of sin, man is able to sin, there's ability to sin, and man is unable to not sin. That he cannot but sin. Does it make sense? Does it make sense? Does it make sense, people of God? In the state of grace, man is able to sin and able not to sin. It's similar to the first one, but there's a difference, but it's similar. And in the state of glory, man is able not to sin and unable to sin. In the state of glory, sin is an impossibility. So let me give us four key words to help us, perhaps in your own personal study before next week, Tuesday. The key word in the state of innocence is what? Instability. Initial instability. In the state of sin is what? Falling inability. In the state of grace, it is renewed ability. And in the state of glory, it is final stability. So we start from instability, Abby, we rise to stability. Does it make sense? The will of man in the four states, at the base of it, is instability, which is basically instability, which is basically the state of innocence. And as man progresses, we get to the state of what? Stability, which is in glory. So does it make sense so thus far? Any questions? I should start again. <laughs> so, state of innocence, initial instability, which is how man was created, the state of sin, falling inability, the state of grace, renewed ability, and the state of glory, final stability. So we are moving from initial instability to final stability. Just the way as you are hitting water, water continues to melt and becomes vapor, the will of man goes this way to final, of course, if you are a Christian anyways, but that's how it looks. So let's turn our eyes to paragraph two and just go deeper into 
the state of innocence. I know this feels like a lecture. It's actually a lecture. It's like a lecture. That's, that's a confession for you. So, let's read paragraph two again. We read it initially. It says, humanity in the state of innocence had, and it's important for us to note the past tense, had. If you had something, there's a great possibility you don't have it again. So humanity in the state of innocence. At this point in time, all paragraph 2 is concerned with is the Garden of Eden. Paragraph 2 is contemplating what happened in Eden. And it's, see, sometimes we think Eden is just a small thing. But there are a lot of things that happen in Eden. Humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power, those two things, Freedom, liberty, power, ability. To will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet, this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. Let me start by saying, Ba, the Bible doesn't tell us much of what happened before the fall. The Bible is, the details in the Bible is sparse. In other words, whenever you see somebody... <laughs> Let me not make mockery of people are big. Whenever you see a book like this, you know, that is talking about what happened before the fall, a lot of times we are really doing guesswork. Because the Bible does not tell us a lot of things. Imagine, in Genesis chapter 1, God told Moses to write all that happened across seven days, right? And then in Genesis chapter 2, he now opens it up specifically uh, what happened in the sixth day, how God created man, opened it up. And then in Genesis chapter 3, man has fallen. So we didn't even see Adam going to walk, if he went to walk, cutting trees, burning firewood. I don't, I don't know. We don't, we don't see Adam doing anything. It's just as if God just created man and man fell. Okay, so there are two schools of thought when it comes to how events panned out between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. One school of thought says that the creation and fall happened in a single week. How many of you have heard of it? Okay. The creation and fall happened in a single week. So that as God was creating man on the sixth day, man was actually falling on the sixth day. So sometimes we think, okay, God created Adam. Then one month later, God now said, ah, Adam is lonely. The Bible does not say. So the time is not there. Was it long? Was it short? We don't know. So some people feel on the sixth day, God created Adam maybe in the morning, 24 hours. A lot of things can happen in 24 hours. So in the morning, God created Adam. In maybe around 11 o'clock, Adam was lonely. By 12 o'clock, God put him to sleep and created him. Maybe Adam named the animal between seven, people are laughing, between 7 and 9.30. So from 9.30 to 10.30, Adam was walking around and there was no helper. God said, Kai, or you got sleep. He now slept. Then God created Eve. And then they were enjoying themselves till like 4 o'clock. And then Eve was now tempted, and God now sent them away. Why do some theologians favor this view? I think Samuel Waldron, uh, the, the popular Baptist commentator of 1689, actually supports this view. Not what I'm saying, no, but the view that if God had allowed Adam and Eve to stay for long, they would have had the opportunity to eat of the... So, Waldron is basically saying, Adam and Eve never really ate of the tree of life. That they never really ate of it. That's one point of view. Eh? The second point of view is that God created Adam, God created Eve, and then they spent some time enjoying life in the garden, and then they fell. Another commentator, I've forgotten his name now, on this same confession, both a Reformed Baptist theologian, support that view. But all we can say, whether it was 24 hours, creation, uh, Adam, Eve, fall, or maybe a month or two, is that the Bible does not tell us much about what happened between Genesis 1 to 3. But the Bible tells us something. So what does the Bible tell us? The first thing the Bible tells us about the Garden of Eden is that God made man able not to sin, or able to not sin. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 28, 29. If you're there, you can read for us. Ecclesiastes 7, 29. 
Ecclesiastes 7:29. Yeah. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay. God made man upright. What does that mean? Uprightness most times in scripture is used to refer to righteousness, rightness. The proper way things are. So, uprightness here means God made man right. And the important thing that this guy, this teacher is trying to teach us is that when God created man, man did not have to work for uprightness. Yeah? It was part of their creation. It was as if God dumped it upon them. Upon creation, man was made upright. And, now, this is the logical flow. If somebody is made upright, it means he can do upright things. It is first John. Only the righteous man can do righteous deeds. Right? And a righteous man's deeds before God are like filthy rags. So when God made Adam and Eve, God made them upright. They could do the right things. He could serve God. He was created in such a way that he could offer acceptable worship to God. That is, he will worship God and it will be accepted. He can serve God and it will be accepted. Are we together? So in the Garden of Eden, God made man able to please him. Because pleasing God is the opposite of sin. Okay? If you are sinning, you are not pleasing God. If you are pleasing God, you are not sinning. So God made man able to please him. God made man upright and man could please him. And that second part of the, of the verse throws light on the first. It says, but they have sought out many schemes. So initially, when God created man, man could please him. Which is why I said, God made man able not to sin. Man could choose to please him. That's the first thing the Bible tells us about the state of innocence. The second thing the Bible tells us is uh, that God made man able to sin. God made man able to sin. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. God made man able to sin. Now, these phrases, you won't see them in the Bible, of course, but you can infer by your humanities. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. I read verse 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Look at it again. God told man, you may surely eat of every tree, but do not eat of this one. You are able to disobey me, but I'm telling you, do not disobey me. Do not eat of this one. Turn to, not turn, I mean, just the next page, or the same page. Chapter 3, verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So in Genesis chapter 2, we already see this possibility, right? That man can choose not to obey God. Man could sin. Does it make sense? Man could sin. And some of us think God was just being theoretical. God wasn't being theoretical. And I think the way to know God wasn't being theoretical is to study passages like Romans chapter 5 from verse 12 to 21, and then 1 Corinthians 15, when the Apostle Paul is trying to draw a kind of opposition between Adam and Christ. God was not joking. Adam was put in probation, theologically speaking. He was put in probation. So God told him, do this one. If you do this, this is what will happen to you. Inferred, of course, because it's not stated clearly in scripture, like word for word. But if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen to you. So passages like Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, give us an idea that if Adam had obeyed God, Adam would have earned life. Abi? If Adam disobeyed God, Adam would have earned death, which is what he earned. When Adam sinned, he died. So this is why we call this the, the state of instability. So it's almost as though Adam is neither here nor there, in a sense. So he was able to say yes to sin, and he was also able to say no to sin. 
But Adam said yes to sin. So let's deal with some, let's provide some further clarification on this matter of Adam and sin. Was Adam autonomous before the fall? No. Adam was never autonomous. So some people think, okay, in the Garden of Eden, the will was correct. The reason why we are not autonomous now is because Adam fell. No. Even Adam, in a state of innocence, was not autonomous. What I mean by autonomous? Autonomy means his will is devoid from God's will, what some people call libertarian view or libertarian freedom. That is that God's sovereignty is just, Adam could do, he was absolutely sovereign, 100%. And, of course, that's why we, we did chapter 2 first of all. In chapter 2, not chapter 2, chapter 3, I just want to read for us what we considered many weeks back. It says, from all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. I want to jump one section. It says, God's decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of secondary causes. On the, other, on the contrary, they are established by God's decree. So somebody was saying last week, kept saying, impeding of will. God doesn't impede your will. Forget the fact that we're talking about the introduction last week. God never impedes the freedom of the creature. God doesn't impede your will. It does not happen. God doesn't impede your will. So how does God's sovereignty and man's will? I mean, Acts chapter 4, we looked at this um, some months back. The way to look at it is that God has decreed everything eh, from eternity past. You will serve the purposes of God. That's all. You are free, but your freedom will serve the purposes of God. Your freedom cannot... How do you say it now? Your freedom cannot out... Get out of God's purposes. You are free, absolutely free. So that means, you know, some of you say this thing, when you say, some of you don't understand what we're talking about. You know, then, when I was struggling to accept some of these doctrines, I used, you know, some people say, how can you say God decrees all things? Bam! So, did God now slap, I will slap you or something? I mean, that's silly. I mean, that's just silly. God has decreed everything. Now, you don't know what God has decreed. Just live your life. By living your life, you are living out God's decree. How? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. Abby? So, God does not impede anybody's will. He decrees all we will ever do. But yet, we are free to do whatever we want to do. That's the Bible. God does not force you. You are truly free. The second clarification, which some of us think is biblical, but it's not biblical, is was Adam perfect before the fall? Adam was not perfect before the fall. Some of us think, oh, in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. That you can just, Adam was just moving around, the air was clean, there was no heat. Sometimes people overemphasize what the Garden of Eden was. It was a garden, of course. It was a garden. And the book of Revelation tells, I mean, there's another garden there. I mean, not prefiguring now, but I mean, there's a new garden there and everything. Rivers, four rivers flowing in and all that. But in the Garden of Eden, perfection was not present. Instability was what was present. So Adam wasn't perfect before the fall. What does perfection look like? Perfection looks like paragraph 5. When man is unable to sin, that's perfection. So if we're talking about perfection, and what we mean is moral perfection, Adam did not have it. The Garden of Eden was more like a probation. The Garden of Eden is... It's not the real thing. I believe it's more or less like the preparation for the real thing. It is not the be all, end all. So man was not perfect. So the question somebody might ask is, what's the difference between pre-fall and post-fall? If there was no perfection in the Garden of Eden, then what is that thing that was so precious about the Garden of Eden? And it's simple. What was precious in the Garden of Eden was not moral perfection, but moral ability. Moral ability. Okay, now, I may have to now go back to the, the lecture again. Now, theologians, particularly Jonathan Edwards in his treatise on the freedom of the will, drew a distinction between natural ability and moral ability. How many of us have heard that before? 
You've not heard it before, but you're hearing it today. There's always a first time to hear something. So natural ability and moral ability. These two things Adam had. After the fall, we don't have. So let's settle down and open them up. What is natural ability? Natural ability is more or less the equipment or enablement to do a thing. It's not difficult. You don't have wings, so you can't fly. You don't have the enablement in your body to fly. Abby, if you put a human being in water, what will happen? Will he live or die? He will die. Why will he die? I mean, someone who cannot swim now. Why will he die? He does not drink the water. He doesn't have the ability. Number one, his body is not shaped in a way to easily glide in water. He doesn't have fins. He doesn't have the mechanism, that natural enablement, that physical properties that would enable him to survive in water. That's what we call natural ability. So when it comes to the will of man, God gave everybody natural ability. What's natural ability? You have a mind to think, to process things. You have a heart to feel those things. And you have a will to act out those things. You, are, you have natural ability. Which is what we're looking at in paragraph one, when the paragraph was talking about natural tendency. Sorry, natural liberty. It means that God has given you everything. In fact, the emotions you need, the cry, Something happens to you, you feel pain, you cry, then you don't make the same mistake again. God has given that to you. You are naturally enabled to do your own thing. In the Garden of Eden, what Adam had was moral ability, which was disposition. So natural abilities, enablement, physical properties, and the things you need to accomplish a task, the equipping you need to accomplish a task, while moral ability is the disposition or the motivation or the inclination to do a thing. So in the Garden of Eden, what Adam had that man lost after he fell was this inclination. Adam could choose right. And if there's anything we should remind ourselves about the Garden of Eden is that Adam could choose right. There's a tendency, you know, sometimes when you come to a place where God is exalted, I mean... Sometimes I'm tired of social media. You know, Calvin is people on social media. They go to a church where God is always exalted. Man should be debased. Man should be full. So the mistake we now make is that we now debase man more than God even debased man. To the point that, say from when God created man, man could not do right. That's, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. That's it. It's not a heresy, but it's an error. In the Garden of Eden, Adam had spiritual or moral ability so Adam could choose to do the right thing. So this is the thing that really differentiates pre-fall and post-fall. After the Garden of Eden, what man now has, which is paragraph 3, which we'll look at next week, is moral inability or spiritual inability. So when we are born now, as descendants of Adam, we have natural ability but we don't have moral ability. So some people now think that moral ability means you don't have free will. No, you have free will. The problem is that the inclination has changed. Does that make sense? Post-fall, the inclination, inclination is the bent. Where does this thing bend to? It has changed. It is no longer bent towards God. So does that make sense? See, the way people are looking at me, some of you just want to sleep. But does that make sense? Is it clear so far? That's all about the second paragraph. The state of innocence. Man was unstable. He was... Now, the Bible does not tell us so much about this state, but the Bible tells us enough. He was unstable. He could do right. He could do wrong. He had natural ability and he had moral ability as well. So what are we taking home? I want us to see the seriousness of our condition. Is it because of this moral inability that we now have after the Garden of Eden, we can't bring ourselves to faith? Have you heard this thing that I'll repent tomorrow? That I will, I will choose when I want to repent? That maybe the end of 2023, or maybe the end of this month, this is the end of the month, I will choose to stop something. I will choose to 
start living right. The problem is, it's, it's presumption to think that we have the ability to stop sinning. We have the ability to save ourselves from our sins. We are like Samson, you know. When Samson, Delilah called out, said, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And <laughs> Samson said, I will go out as at other times and I will shake myself free. Samson thought he had the ability to still do that thing. We don't. After the fall of Adam, nobody by birth can save themselves, can bring themselves to faith. It's as if you're in a burning house. Hmm? If you have the key to the burning house, it's a different story. Maybe something is burning in the kitchen, maybe this kitchen, and you are here, but you have the key to this door. You won't really panic. You can be saying, oh, uh, so Emeka, uh, the container, you can be making your call, be just say, okay, I still have five minutes more. I still have five minutes more. So let me continue making my call. So when the fire now begins to come out, and ask, okay, open the door and get it. That's not how it works. The house is on fire, you don't have the key. The house is on fire. And no man has the key. If the fire is to spread from the kitchen, you are going to burn while in a serious condition. Which makes the condition of man urgent. If you are a sinner and you are still tomorrow, 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 the house is burning and you don't have the key. What you need to do is to cry out to God for salvation. Don't think that maybe by this evening, I'm not trying to scare you the old way they used to scare that if you step out of the gates, Okada will jam you. And then there was a man 10 years ago who Okada jammed. But seriously speaking, you don't have the key to the house. And you are going to end up suffering eternal damnation if you don't cry out to God for salvation. Your situation is very dire and very serious. But not just those who are unbelievers here. Let me talk to the believers as well. This study is meant to remind us, perhaps, of the seriousness of our friends and loved ones. You know this thing you hear in Africa? Tunde no serious. When Tunde serious, it go change. You hear those things when parents used to say those things? You know, sometimes African parents can brag, and I know this from experience. I have an African parent. And you say, my own sons, they were responsible, and they did this, and they went to school, and they took this one. See that one across the street. He said, he can't, even, he can't even come to his senses. And sometimes, you know, that's how we look at unbelievers. We see a man who is knee-deep in sin, cannot stop humanizing, cannot stop stealing, cannot stop lying, and then we look at the person and say, when is serious, sin will stop. Really? When is serious, sin will come around. Live and I never serious. When is serious, it will come around. You know, sometimes we think some of our friends are, I have some friends who are, who are addicted to gambling. And some of the mistakes we make sometimes is to think, ah, listen, they never finish in money. When they finish in money, go come back. It, that's not how it works. So. Why? Because when they finish in money, go go borrow money. It never really ends. That's bondage. That's the kind of bondage man is in by nature. Why don't we pray for the lost? Because we think that when the money finished, they could come around. We think that HIV will change the person. Or the unwanted pregnancy will change the person. Or that a spoiled liver will change the person. It doesn't work that way. And I'm telling you, so that we will be more moved by the plight of the lost people around us. There is no moral ability to change. There's no moral ability to turn to God on their own and save themselves. There's no moral ability to will themselves to faith. And lastly, let us be grateful. I think, for me, the take home is that instability. Total, complete stability. Some of us are tired of sin because you are struggling with this in the Christian life, which is the state of grace, which we'll look at later. I'm struggling with this. God has given me his spirit to not sin, but I still have remaining sin in me. And sometimes we can get tired, right, of the constant struggle. Paul says it in Romans 7. It's what I do not want to do that I find myself doing. 
oh wretched man that I am. I think the first state reminds me that there's a state of glory and I can persevere. I can persevere. Yes, Adam has fallen. There's a state of sin. God has saved me as a Christian. But I can persevere and hold on. There's a time when the Egyptians, I see, I'll see them no more. Any questions? Any questions? How many questions do we have? There's one online, but from who? Brother Sam, Adrian. Okay, bro, SA, bro, Wilson, bro, Sam. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, sir. So you said at one point that we are free, but our freedom will always serve the will of God. We are absolutely free, but our freedom would, would never be out, would, would never go out of the will of God. That's how you put it, right? Yeah. But then before that, you said humanity has never been, no, you said we never had autonomy. So I think my question now would be, what's the difference between we being free and we being free to the point of autonomy or something like that? Okay, let me just answer. Autonomy would mean that God has nothing to say. We call all the shots. There's no such thing as God's decree, and if there's such thing as God's decree, it is merely God bowing down to us or God just knowing what we will do. God doesn't stand objectively and decree a thing. That's the difference. So the biblical view is that man is never autonomous. Man is free, truly free. He makes his own choices in time, but that's at the human level. At the upper level, God, is decreeing, God has decreed everything. He has decreed the end from the beginning at the topmost level. So man here is truly free, but he's not autonomous. He's still under God's sovereignty and God's decree. So that's how two of them really. I don't know if that, that helps. I'll, I'll ask the question next week. When, maybe next week, uh, someone will explain for the on the second and Next week, I have. Yeah. Hopefully you'll not see me here next week. Anyways, bro, we'll see. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Sam. Okay, just to retreat from what you said about Adam from the beginning, that you said he had um, the ability to not sin. Okay, that was before the fallen state. Mm. And then you say that since we are in the fallen state, that we have this natural ability, but that morality is not there. But if Adam had both of them, then is it that our own morality is in it somehow in there in our natural state, or we never have that morality at all. Yeah, so the thing with Adam is Adam is, you know, we can't say a lot about Adam. Do you know why? Adam is the only person like himself in the whole Bible. Not just that. The, the, I mean, how, how many are we in the world now? Eight billion, Abby? Eight billion. Do you know there were no two Adams? There was just one Adam and one Eve. So compare the amount of data we have on those two people. It's very small, just two of them. After Adam, every other person is a different kind of human being with a different kind of will, existing in a different state, right? So what we can say is that Adam and Eve, two of them at that time, had both natural ability, they had the equipment and the enablement to make choices, and that they could, their choices could be good or evil. Their choices could be good toward God and also not good toward God. After Adam and Eve fell, specifically after Adam fell, he lost that inclination to do good again. So it's as if, um, hmm. so the, assuming this is the will of Adam, the natural ability, this is good, this is evil. Adam could do both. He could because he was in a state of innocence. He was unstable. He was upright. And God gave him the choice. He could do both. After Adam fell, if this was good, this one don't spoil. So Adam could only go this way now. Adam, Cain, Abel, every person who comes after Adam, including ourselves, when it comes to God by nature. This is different from the state of grace. So in the state of grace, God renews this. Right? God renews it. Not just renewing it. We now have enablement by the Holy Spirit to come here. But before somebody becomes a Christian, this is where we are, toward God. We can do some good toward man, 
in terms of acceptable societal good, civil good, we can pay our taxes, we can clean our surrounding. But when it comes to God, God word, we can't do anything good God word. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please God. Romans 8, 7. Indeed, it cannot. It can't come this way. It's always here. Cannot please God. Hostile to God. At enmity with God. So that's the difference between Adam and us by nature. When we come to Christ now, this thing is now renewed. It cannot bend towards good. So by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can choose good. We can choose good. But before we come to Christ, we are just here. Bad, bad, bad. Evil, 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 evil. And then when we get to heaven, it's here. Confirm. This one is gone. There's no, we can't see it again. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, it did help. But the caveat should have been good towards God. Yeah, because good towards like God. you exemplified, there are people that are morally good and that yeah. actually exhibit their morality but don't know God. Yes. So the good we are defining in this sense is good toward God. Good that is spiritually good. But some. Okay, Brother Sam Andrew has two questions. One is, um, what did Adam lose at the fall? Moral ability, natural ability, or both? Moral ability. Then, did Old Testament sins have renewed ability? That's a very good question. That's a very, that's a very, very good question. When I was right, it's a good question. Did the Old Testament sins have renewed ability? That's interesting. If we're going to define renewed ability as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Were they indwelled by the Spirit? Were they saved by faith? Yes. Right? They were saved by faith. They were, they were genuinely Christians. Were they indwelled by the Holy Spirit? In the same way that in the New Covenant, now, see, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, actually, biblically speaking, is a direct result of the work of Christ. Abby, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because ye are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. So what do you think, church? Did they have renewed ability? But God should be saying, they are not. I don't know if you are dispensationalist, so I don't even know whether I should. I don't trust you. You are a son of John MacArthur. You are not reformed. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. But what do you think? Hmm? They are not the same. We can use the mic now so that everybody will hear you too. If the if the whole old saints could be in a form where um, they enjoy the feeling of the Holy Spirit, like um, I mean us who are post um, death of Christ, then I I think there won't be any need. Would have would have just been there and then moved to heaven. I don't know if you get my point. Yeah, I would I would not answer that question today, but Sam, but. If we're, talking about, if we're talking about it merely as the indwelling of the Spirit, look at how the confession puts it. It says, when God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet, because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also will what is evil. And all the proof texts are all from the New Testament. So I think there's a sense in which we can say, in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit in a way that the Old Testament saints did not. But it doesn't mean they were unable to do spiritual good. I will get back to you on that next week. But there's a difference, but it doesn't mean they were unable to do spiritual good. Because when God saves a person, 
God enables that person to do spiritual good. So if they were saved by faith, they could do spiritual good. Does that make sense? Somebody has a question. Two questions. Okay, because of time. I mean, this is 7-11, so 30 seconds. In the old okay, in the old testament as well, in Ezekiel thirty-six, I think most theologians tend to say that this is what Jesus was referring to when he answered Nicodemus. When Nicodemus asked him, How does someone get born again? Mm. Yeah, so in, in Ezekiel thirty six, that's where God was saying, um, I will sprinkle clean water on you, I will, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. But I don't know, is this Prophetic, or did this happen in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is Ezekiel 36, it's in the Old Testament. But here as well, it says, I will put a new spirit, a new spirit that will put within you. Uh, Prodigy. You're asking a question. You said it was contribution, but you're asking a question. Liquidity, <laughs> turn to question. <laughs> Brother DJ. Good evening, church. Good evening, sir. Okay, so I have a question, not a contribution, by the way. So, would you? Okay. You say you not you have not answered Brother Sam's question. Have you? Yeah, no, I've answered it, but not complete. I've answered it halfway. Okay. So, for, for the Old Testament saints, what, 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 is, what is really different between them and the New Testament saints? Because would you, especially as it comes to the ability, ability part, and we know that it's the Holy Spirit indwelling that enables us. So, so you, we can see in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit left somebody, King Saul. And for us, it doesn't leave as New Testament. We have taught expressly that the Spirit never leaves us. So, would you, I don't know. My question is not even clear in my head. So, <laughs> you, are, you are going to clarify it for me. Uh, this is, this yeah, is. I, I think we can agree, Bar. We can agree, biblically speaking, that even though the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, there are certain things in the New Testament that the Old Testament saints did not enjoy, certainly not in the same way. They did not enjoy it in the same way. And I believe one of those things is that full orb revelation we find in the New Testament, that God indwells every single one of his children, it is not properly seen, like full-blown in the Old Testament. But does it mean God is not with them? God is actually with them. Case in point is Joseph. In Genesis 39, yeah, when Joseph was in prison, when he was sold, the Bible kept telling us God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. How was God with him? The Bible, the revelation is not full of, as in the Holy Spirit is indwelling him, but God was actually with them, and they could do spiritual good. There's a difference. But I want us to be careful how we now say they did not have the Holy Spirit. That's not true. They had the Holy Spirit. But we have, we have what we have is fuller. What we have is like, it is, I mean, it's as if they were dreaming of plenty of things that we now enjoy. They were seeing it from afar. They had the promises. Now we have the fulfillment. It's, it's like it's... Yes, so I think we can pray. But we can talk about that later. But I think we, we now agree, at least that... Yeah. No, who, has a, who said has a question? I mean, should we take the question? Yes, yes, yes. Because, I mean... Um, my question is this. Is it safe to say that um, what, uh, one of the difference of Adam before 
before sin, before sinning, uh. was that um, he, he was made perfect, right? Mm. He, was, he was made perfect. Prior to his sin, he could not sin. Okay, go on. No, let me, exp- let, me, let me ask my question. I wanted to get the question well. Could we say that the difference between Adam and us now is as in, 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 in terms of when we are talking about him not being able to, uh, us now, not being able to not sin, and, and him, because if he was, we could, it's, it's totally different, because him, he could, he, he could not, he was not in the state of not being able to not sin. Wow. Right? And, and he ended, he sinned. So the difference between him and us, is it safe to say now that, is, that he was yet to sin? <laughs> no, is that the question? That he was yet to I, I don't know, maybe I'll put it, I'll write the question down so that I can explain myself where, because this is confusing. Write it down. I think we can pray and go. I mean, we can, we can I mean, it's, it's five paragraphs, we'll come back next week, we'll continue from a state of sin. So it's, it's it, it, because we did not really, we did not really go into paragraph three. It's paragraph three that opens up the state of sin. So instead of saying able to not see, not able, in paragraph three, we will not see the specific problems outlined. We can't do good, we can't do this, outlined to what happened to man after the fall. Okay? So I think we've, we've, we've learned enough tonight. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to grant us understanding into these things and help us to constantly be in awe of how much you've done for us in renewing us by your Holy Spirit and setting us apart as your people to serve and offer worship that is acceptable to you. We ask that you take us home safely tonight, grant us sound sleep, and wake us up in the morning with renewed strength and vigor to serve you in whatever capacity you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good night, people of God.